You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of 95 Harcourt Street and the murder of Hazel Mullen. This week we're running a little bit longer than normal. There was a lot of material to cover in this particular story. So apologies to those who don't like the longer episodes. But frankly, I didn't think our patron Dara could handle another two-part episode so quickly after the Catherine Nevin story. So this one's for you, Dara. And now, on to our story. The Swinging Sixties. It evokes images of psychedelic flower power, hippies and go-go girls, Miniskirts, bikinis, and bell-bottoms in neon colors and denim. Long hair, big lashes, twiggy. The doors, the Rolling Stones, pot, and LSD. But the 1960s in Dublin was a very different place. Our primary colors seemed to have been the muted tones of brown and grey. The country as a whole was barely over a decade old, and the strong ties to the Roman Catholic Church were firmly in place. It was a conservative, mainly agricultural country, and the capital city reflected that. People lived modestly. It was a pretty homogenous community. Everyone was pretty much the same. The population was mainly white and mainly Catholic, and would remain so until the beginning of the Celtic Tiger economic boom in the mid-1990s. Things weren't entirely dreary, though. Entertainment in the city consisted of going to the pictures, aka the movies, and attending one of the many dance halls dotted throughout the city and country. Big bands travelled, playing hall to hall, and people came out to hear their favourite tunes, have a bit of a dance, and a shandy. The city of Dublin had changed little since the War of Independence in the early 20s. It was filled with old buildings, some giant Georgian mansions and townhouses that graced the main streets of the city and housed businesses and some shadows of their former glory, now decaying tenements. Emigration was still a popular pastime of Irish youth, looking to escape the sometimes suffocating conservatism, both social and economic. Immigration was pretty much non-existent. People of colour walking the streets of Dublin were a rarity. Those who had arrived here, however, were treated well generally, but there was still an undercurrent of racism to it. They were a novelty. There was also a certain degree of backpatting going on, people saying, sure aren't we great and welcoming to people, all the while knowing that this was the case only so long as, quote, these people would eventually move on somewhere else. In 1963, a golden god from America arrived, a grandchild of one of our very own. Crowds came out to line the street to welcome him home. JFK, the President of the United States, where we had sent millions of our children, had returned a hero. His picture was mounted on walls to take pride of place next to the current Pope. In 1963, the Minister for Justice introduced a bill that would remove the death penalty for cases of murder, except in limited circumstances, primarily the murder of a member of the Irish Police Service on Garda Síochána. The bill was, in part, a reaction to the execution of James Hanratty in England the year before. 
It was also the year that saw the introduction of rights that had a constitutional basis which would pave the way for the women's movement and bring about the availability, although limited, of contraception. It was into this world that Shan Mohangi entered. He was the eldest son of Indian parents living in the Tongart region of Natal, South Africa. His father was a successful sugarcane grower, but given the apartheid regime, Shan's opportunities were limited in his home country. He wasn't especially bright, but he was a very hard worker, and, like many sons of middle-class families, he decided to make a life for himself abroad. He left South Africa in 1961 and travelled through Europe, arriving in Dublin in August of 1961. Soon after arriving, he sat and passed the entrance exam at the Royal College of Surgeons. The college was, and is, well regarded and has a tradition of accepting overseas students. Shan was in no way on his own in this venture, and his parents, like many others, would hand over the high fees asked by the school. Initially, Shan and his comrades would stay in a sort of halfway house, run by the United Missionary Council. It was set up specifically to serve this need, as it could often be difficult to find digs in the city willing to rent to foreigners. These overseas students would eventually find rented property, but their landlords often charged a premium for the little flats. Shan eventually moved into 95 Harcourt Street, in the south inner city not far from Stevens Green and the College of Surgeons. He inhabited a flat on the upper floor of a four-storey over-basement, terraced Georgian house. The basement of the building housed a restaurant called The Green Terrine, which was popular due to its late opening hours. It had a wine licence and could serve drink until half two in the morning. In fact, it only opened for business between half ten and half two for the six nights a week it was open. There was a snack shop and a storage centre on the ground floor, and the other three floors were made up of flats and bedsits, also occupied by mainly male African students. The whole building was owned by Cecil Frew. He and his wife ran the restaurant. Cecil took an interest in Shan. He had once been a medical student too, and eventually he gave Shan a job as a commie chef in the restaurant when Shan was having difficulties with his studies. In September of 1961, Shan met Josephine Farrelly. She was 19 and from Mullingar, County Westmeath. The two quickly became engaged in January of 1962. But Josie, as he called her, returned to Mullingar in March of that year, and although they wrote to one another, the correspondence was irregular and at times strange, and the engagement was broken in July. But Chan didn't remain alone for long. The next month, he met 14-year-old Hazel Mullen. She was working in Brown's Chemist on Stevens Green. Like Mohangi, she came from a big family, and she was the third eldest of six kids. Her mother was a widow, and she worked as a caretaker and sexton in St. James's Church, Crinken, near Shank Hill. It was an Anglican church, so the Mullins were part of the main minority in the Republic, Protestants. They lived in a house on the grounds of the church, across from the vicarage, called the Lodge. Hazel brought Shan to meet her mother and family in August of 1962, with her mother's permission. Bridget Mullen was welcoming of Mohangi, but warned that her daughter was very young and had never been out with boys before. Shan at this stage was 22 years old. Somehow, for some reason, Mrs. Mullen gave him permission to take Hazel out and to visit their home, provided that he took care of her. 
He even struck up a friendship with Hazel's older brother, Desmond, who sometimes stayed at Mohangi's bedsit. Bridget Mullins said later that she knew from early on that Shan wanted to marry Hazel, but she didn't think that Hazel felt the same way about him. There were a couple of incidents where Hazel had tried to break it off with him, but she had felt bad and said she didn't want to hurt him and had changed her mind. She also wrote him letters saying that she looked forward to being married and having a child with him, so it may be that her mother was mistaken. He continued to spend some time each weekend at the Mullen home, and even spent a week with them over Christmas in 1962. He began attending church services with them on Sundays. The couple were still courting by the summer of 1963, and Hazel had begun a very good new job working in Bank of Ireland on College Green, not too far from Stevens Green and the College of Surgeons. She'd also picked up two modelling jobs for during the Dublin Horse Show, a huge event that still takes place today in the same showgrounds, the Royal Dublin Society, just outside the city centre on the south side. She was to model during the show for two different fashion companies. She took the week off from her job in Bank of Ireland, and Shan met her every day and they had lunch together in the showgrounds. She returned to work on Monday the 12th of August, and Shan visited Crinkin that Tuesday. On the Friday, the 16th, Shan rang the house and asked Hazel to have lunch with him the following day in his flat. Bridget Mullen gave her permission for Hazel to go. It had lashed rain that Friday, and when Hazel left her home on Saturday morning to head into town for work, she carried her umbrella to keep dry on the way to the bus stop. Shan had slept late that day, which was not surprising, as he was unlikely to get to bed much before 4am. Patrons rarely left the green terrain before 3am, and that meant that the staff would be on later. They'd often finish the night with a chat over a cup of tea and a smoke. The milkman used his own key to open the door to number 95 that morning. At about 11, Mohangi got up and went to collect his suit from the dry cleaners. When he got home, he made himself some breakfast and dozed until he was disturbed by his doorbell. It was the milkman returning to collect his bill, which he usually did on a Saturday. Shan paid the man and took the receipt. Around one, Shan headed downstairs to put the milk crate inside the door of the restaurant. When he headed down the stairs, the doorbell rang. It was for him, and he went straight to the door to open it. It was five past one. Hazel had a half day in work on Saturdays. They finished up at half twelve, and this day, when she was finished... She crossed College Green with a work friend, chatting before they parted ways and Hazel headed up Grafton Street on her own. She popped into Woolworths, long gone from the street, and chatted with a school friend of hers that worked there, Joan Dowds. They talked for about ten minutes and then Hazel left. One of her colleagues at the bank, Carl Kowser, a trainee printer, spotted her at the top of Grafton Street, that's the Stevens Green end, at about ten to one. Harcourt Street was just a few minutes' walk along the park and across the street. It was the last time she was seen alive. At about 2pm that afternoon, Miss Elizabeth Fitzpatrick and her family turned into Harcourt Street, walking from Stevens Green. As they approached number 95, they noticed white smoke billowing from the gratings in the sidewalk. The couple banged on the front door and the side door of the building, and eventually drew the attention of Winston Satubu, resident of the second story. He told another Renton, Morgan Pillay, and they went downstairs together. They banged on the basement door, but it didn't open. 
Satubu ran up the five flights of stairs to Mahangi's bedsit as he knew that Shan had a key to the restaurant, but again no one answered. He went back down the stairs and told the Fitzpatricks what was going on. When they went back into the building, Mohangi was coming up from the green terrine. He appeared with his shirt off and explained that he was trying to cook some steak and it had burned. He left the basement door open, allowing the smoke to dissipate, and after a few minutes spent in the hallway checking the letter rack, Pile and Satubu returned to their rooms. Mr. Fitzpatrick decided to contact the fire brigade, who arrived outside the restaurant at 2.16pm. They were met at the door by Mohangi, who was waving his arms about, trying to convince them that everything was okay and that they didn't need to enter the basement. Michael Gray, the fire chief, said he'd have a look anyway, thanks. Mohangi was shaking as he brought the man down to the basement restaurant, which was still very smoky. There was a bad smell, like boiling meat that the water had boiled off of. There were no flames in the griller, and nothing seemed to be burning. Shan was very nervous, and as the firefighter turned to leave, he noticed that Shan was standing in the way of another room, a storage cellar. Seven members of the brigade had trooped in and out of the kitchen, with Mohangi standing in front of the adjoining cellar, even blocking the way to stop one of the men entering. Eventually, Shan saw the team out. Winston Satubu and other curious residents gathered in the entrance hall, curious about the commotion that was caused by the fire brigade's arrival. Mohangi assured them all was well, and that there wasn't a fire. The others went upstairs, and he returned to the basement. It was about 2.45. Satubu, who seemed the most curious of the residents, said that he didn't see Mohangi again for the rest of the afternoon. Mohangi didn't emerge until that evening. He had made plans with Desmond Mullen to have him and his girlfriend, Heather Malcolm, over for dinner. He went out and ordered a cooked chicken from a shop on the corner of the green that did that sort of thing, and headed back to the flat to change into his blue suit. Desmond and Heather arrived late at about 7.20, and when they rang at the door, Shan told them to go to the shop to collect the chicken. It wasn't quite ready, so the two went over to Shan's and climbed the stairs to his flat. Desmond returned to the home market shop about ten minutes later and collected the chicken, which Mahangi served with rice, liver, and dal. The dinner was to say goodbye to Heather, who was going to Belfast, to take up a nursing position in the Royal Victoria Hospital. Mohangi excused himself at about half eight for fifteen minutes, saying he had to let the staff into the green terrine. He ate very little, and the two told him a number of times to cheer up. He was in an unusually bad mood. After dinner, Mohangi suggested coffee, but then excused himself to get milk from the fridge in the basement. He was gone again for about 15 minutes, and when he returned, he said he had been delayed by his landlord. Heather and Desmond were heading out to Greystones to attend a dance. Mohangi seemed to perk up at this and reminded them of a time when Mohangi and Hazel had gone with them to the dance hall, and then he suggested that all three of them head out to watch the continuous cartoon film show, which was on in the Grafton Cinema. Desmond was anxious to get out to Greystones, though, and eventually Mahangi saw them to the door. Desmond said he would see Shan later. They'd arranged for Desmond to stay over in the flat that night, and then the two would drive out to the Mullen house together the next morning. At about half ten, Mahangi reported to work in the basement and let in the regular staff at the restaurant, Margaret O'Connor and her daughter, Peg Sheehan. 
They said that they didn't notice anything unusual about Mohangi that night. Desmond arrived back at 95 Harcourt Street at 2.15am and had a drink of orange while he waited for Mohangi to finish up work. Meanwhile, in Crinken, at about 11pm on the Saturday evening, Bridget Mullen began to get worried that Hazel hadn't returned home. But she headed on to bed. She knew that Hazel had arranged to meet Mahangi, and when she woke at 2am to let her friend who was staying for the weekend into the house and found that Hazel still wasn't home, she rang Cecil Frew at the restaurant and asked for Mahangi to come to the phone. Shan told her that Hazel had never turned up. He told her that Hazel had said she wasn't sure that she would definitely be coming because she might be needed at home. This was news to Bridget. She then spoke to her son and asked him if Hazel had been at the dance with him in Greystones. He, of course, hadn't seen her, and Desmond decided to leave right then to go home and look for Hazel. Shan, unasked, decided to go with him. Bridget Mullen rang Shankill Garda station as soon as she hung up the phone with Desmond. The two men called into the station on their way down to the house in Crinken. Bridget didn't sleep that night, and the two boys slept in her house. The next morning, Bridget decided to ring some of Hazel's colleagues in the Bank of Ireland, who told her that she had been in work and, in fact, had planned to go over to Shan's that afternoon. Again, Mohangi insisted that she had not called at his flat. Desmond, Mohangi, and a family friend, Mr. Doran, went to Shankill Garda Station to give them an update and then they began a search that would last all weekend. They drove to Harcourt Street. Doran suggested that they speak to the other tenants, so with the other two men, Mohangi knocked on the doors and asked if they knew anything. So Tubu told the men that he had heard Mohangi's bell ring at about quarter past one that Saturday, but he wasn't certain about the sequence of events. The three then headed to Harcourt Terrace Garda Station. Doran and Mullen went inside, with Mohangi waiting in Desmond's car. A short while later, Doran returned to the car. He asked Mohangi why it was that he was in the house all day, but didn't hear the bell go at a quarter past one like Satubu had said. Mohangi shrugged his shoulders. Then Desmond came back to the car with a Garda, and the four drove back to Harcourt Street. When the guard questioned Satubu, he said that he remembered the bell ringing and that he had seen a young girl walking away from the door of number 95 and across the street. At first he said that he thought it was Hazel, but then, with a little prompting from Mohangi, he said that it was a girl who worked at the Meath Hospital. He had seen this after the fire brigade had left. The girl from the Meath Hospital was Josephine Farrelly. Josie had moved back to Dublin in March of 63 and had got back in touch with Mohangi. They had gone out together to the cinema and for a meal on the Thursday the 15th of August, and she'd also spent some time at his flat on the Friday evening as well. That evening, Heather and Desmond had also called by to confirm their plans for the Saturday night, and Mohangi had come down to them in their car to talk. It may well be that Josie was up in his flat, and Mohangi didn't want them to find out. Shan returned to the Mullins' house that afternoon, where Bridget prepared lunch and supper, and he lazed about in the back garden. Just before tea time, Bridget rang Shankill Garda Station and then informed Mohangi that she had called them and asked them to search 95 Harcourt Street. She said it was obvious that Hazel had in fact gone to number 95 and asked if Shan thought it was possible that one of the other tenants might have grabbed her. 
He said that he didn't think that that had happened. The Sunday evening, Doran and another family friend, Adam Perkins, got into Perkins's car and drove them back to Harcourt Terrace Garda Station. They were quickly followed by Desmond and Mohangi in another car. Desmond followed the other two men inside, leaving Shan again in the car on his own. About an hour and a half later, Mohangi was approached in the car by a Garda and was asked to come inside the station. Once at the counter, Inspector Kennedy asked him if he knew where Hazel was and if she was at the flat. Mohangi said he didn't and she wasn't. He then consented to a search of the flat. They all headed back down to number 95 and Shan let them through the front door and led them up the stairs. Inspector Kennedy looked under the bed and in the closet and then sat down and had a chat with Shan. They talked about his relationship with Hazel and with Josie Farrelly. He told the guardie that Hazel wasn't seeing anyone else that he knew of and that he didn't know where she might be. Realising he was getting nowhere, Kennedy decided to search the whole building and checked out the flats that were occupied. He and another guard at Gardakani briefly interviewed Satubu and Pile and came across a man by the name of Michael Cusack. He was a handyman who worked in the building and he was in the process of taking out the bins. He didn't live in the flats. Then Shan let the guardie into the restaurant. Kennedy poked about the kitchen and looked into the two cellars, calling out Hazel's name. But there was no response, and all he had seen in the cellars were boxes of rubbish. The guardie left and began walking to the station. The car hadn't waited for them. Mohangi followed after them, and they began making small talk, particularly about Shan's failing studies. When they got to the Garda station, they left Shan in the public waiting area, and he said he would wait there for Desmond. It was after half ten at night when Inspector Kennedy returned to tell Desmond and Adam Perkins that the search had turned up nothing and that Shan was waiting for them out of the front counter. It would seem that the two men left quietly through a back door, avoiding Mohangi, shortly after Kennedy returned to them. Then Kennedy let Mohangi know that Desmond had left the building, and, as a very confused Shan was leaving himself, Kennedy and another inspector again asked him if he knew anything that might help them in finding the missing girl. Again, Mohangi said he couldn't help. It might be that the guardie had ushered Desmond out of the station in the hopes that Mohangi would leave and lead them to wherever Hazel was when he realised he'd been left in the station alone. But if this was the case, then they were disappointed. He simply headed home, waited until he thought Desmond would have reached Crinken, and rang him. Desmond got back into his car and picked up Mohangi, taking him back to the house to spend the night again in Hazel's bed. Utterly bizarre. At some point that night, Meredith, Doran, and Desmond were talking in the room that Doran was using. Mohangi heard the voices there and went in to see what they were talking about. They stopped talking, possibly because he had been the subject of the conversation, and then Shan just stood there silently for a few minutes before leaving. Again, utterly bizarre. It would seem that although they allowed him to stay in the house and fed him while they tried to figure out where Hazel had gone, suspicion was growing in the Mullen household. By Monday morning, Bridget decided to confront Shan herself. At eight that morning, she went into Hazel's room where Shan was sleeping and said to him that she must have gone to his place on Saturday. He denied it yet again. They spent the day searching, and eventually they returned to the house and were joined by Evelyn Mullen, Hazel's older sister, and her fiancé, Harry Johnson, 
When they'd eaten, Shan hitched a ride back into town with the couple so that he could be on time to let the staff into the green terrine. He found Margaret and Peg were waiting there for him, and he let them into the restaurant. Margaret collected the empty bins and brought them down with her. When they got to the restaurant, they immediately noticed that the place reeked. Now, it was usually a bit smelly after it had been shut up and empty over the weekend, but this was a particularly foul smell, and not at all usual in the green terrine. The women began scrubbing the floor of the restaurant and the stairway, hoping that it would help alleviate the smell. When Mahangi left them at their work, he walked almost immediately into Inspector Kennedy and Inspector O'Connell from the Harcourt Terrace station. Kennedy had visited the house twice earlier that day. The first time they were let in by Mr. Satubu, and they ran into Josie Farrelly, who was on the stairs. She had come looking for Shan, but she and the police got no reply to their knocks at his door. There was a note jammed in between the door and its frame, which was still there when he returned at about half three that afternoon. Shan had still not returned. He wasn't there when Josie called back that afternoon either. Kennedy again went through the questions that he had, at this point, been asked a number of times, and Mohangi repeated that he knew nothing of Hazel's disappearance. When he left, Josie Farrelly arrived. She found Mohangi had lost his composure and described him as trembling and appearing very upset. She had questioned him about Hazel as well, and she asked him if maybe Hazel had gone to England. Maybe, he said. Cecil Frew noticed the smell that evening when he entered the restaurant. He reckoned that it might be coming from the manhole cover in the kitchen, so he lifted it and poured a ton of disinfectant down it. Mahangi turned up at work a bit quieter than usual, according to Margaret, and soon the reporters began to arrive. They wanted to talk to Shan about Hazel's disappearance. Cecil, Shan, and a reporter from the Times, Liam McGovern, sat down together to answer his questions but Cecil did much of the talking at first. Mahangi was becoming increasingly uncomfortable during their interview, and when McGovern left, he called Pier Street Garda Station to let them know that he was pretty sure that Shan was involved in the disappearance. After the reporter left, Evelyn Mullen, Harry Johnson, and the Perkins arrived at the restaurant and sat down to a meal. Mahangi never approached them at that time, but they could see him moving about his work in the small restaurant. It was quiet that night, with only two other couples dining. The foul smell, partly covered with disinfectant, can't have added to the atmosphere. Because it was so quiet, Margaret decided that she would clean out the storage cellar. It was the one that Mohangi had blocked the fire brigade from entering the Saturday before. It was where they kept the bins and crates and rubbish that the restaurant accumulated through the week. When she was moving the boxes and crates about... Margaret came across a bone that had some meat attached to it. It reeked, and Margaret gagged. She gathered it up in newspaper and put it in the bin. She told Mrs. Frew about it, who presumably told her husband about it, because later that night, Cecil left the restaurant, asking Mahangi to wait for him. When he got back, he suggested to Shan that they go for a drive for some fresh air and to continue to look for Hazel. They got in the car and started driving through the southern suburbs of the city, through Rathmines and Rathgar. They were near Mount Carmel Hospital when Shan turned to Cecil. I'm in trouble, he said. Is it about the girl, Cecil asked? Yes, Mohangi whispered. Shan admitted that Hazel was dead and she was in the building. Cecil Frew managed to maintain his calm and outlined Mohangi's options to him. 
He could accompany him to the Garda station, or drop him off there, or try and find him a solicitor to accompany him in. Mohangi appeared to be nearly in a catatonic state and would not make a decision, so the two returned to the restaurant. Fru tried to get him a solicitor but couldn't get hold of anyone that late at night, and eventually Mohangi went back to his room, telling Cecil he would wait there while Fru went and got the guardie. Cecil collected his wife and they went straight to Harcourt Terrace Station. Garda Sergeant Connell reacted quickly and he and two other guardie headed over immediately. When they got to Shan's flat, they noticed a strong smell of gas coming from the room. They broke down the door, finding Mohangi lying on the bed, and turned off the gas at the cooker and on the heater, throwing the window wide open. There was a note that said Shan wanted all his belongings to go to Josephine Farrelly. They shook Mohangi, and he shivered and spat out a white pill, but said nothing. The guardie had gotten there just in time. The ambulance arrived shortly after, and he was brought to St. Vincent's Hospital on nearby Leeson Street. Inspector Kennedy arrived and did a thorough search of the building, and when he entered the storage cellar, behind some plywood and a car tire, he found the remains of Hazel Mullen. He stayed in the building until the technical bureau arrived later that morning. The scene was photographed and the whole building was dusted for fingerprints. Mohangi was declared fit at 20 past 10 that morning and was formally arrested and taken to Harcourt Terrace Station, where his interview began. After some small talk about Mohangi's early life, he described his relationship with Josie and then how he had met Hazel. He said that they had been hoping to get engaged and that he was very jealous of her. He said that one evening Hazel had told him that he wasn't the first boy she had kissed and he hit her. He apologised and she stayed on in the flat for some time after that. He described how she had come over that Saturday and how she had arrived when he was bringing the milk down to the restaurant. He then said that Hazel had told him that she had had sex with someone else and he went into a blind rage and accidentally strangled her. He burned her clothing and put some of her internal organs into the bin. He hid Hazel's handbag and umbrella in the house. He said that he had panicked and cut up Hazel's body and hid it. He had tried to kill himself because of the guilt and shame from his actions. When Mohangi's flat was searched, the guardie removed a sheet of asbestos that had covered up the fireplace behind where the gas heater had been installed. In the grate they found, quote, five large pieces of flesh, end quote. Mohangi was brought to a special sitting of the district court at half eight that evening and was charged with the murder and remanded in custody. In response to the charge, Mohangi stated simply, quote, I want it all over quickly, end quote. The state pathologist, Dr. Morris Hickey, arrived at the scene at a quarter to eleven that evening, and after he viewed Hazel's remains in situ, they were removed to the city morgue. Desmond Mullen undertook the awful responsibility of identifying Hazel, which he managed to do by recognising bits of her. Her fingernails, a burn on her arm, the shape of her ears. She was buried on the 24th of August near her home in Crinken. The next Monday, the 26th, Shan's father and uncle arrived in Dublin and were met by his solicitor, who brought them to see Mohangi in Mount Joy. Mohangi attended the district court two further times, both attended by a more than usual amount of guardie and by the press and public. A date was set for depositions, October 14th. His trial would take place in the Green Street Courthouse on Monday the 10th of February, 1964.
At about 10 a.m. on the morning of the 10th of February, a woman stumbled into the road in front of Michael O'Kane's car near Kalini, a picturesque seaside town on the south side of Dublin County. The man helped the young woman, who was terribly confused, into his car and took her to Dawkey Garda Station. She said she didn't know her name or her address. She said she didn't want to go to the hospital, but that's exactly where the Gardaí took her. It emerged that she was, in fact, Josephine Farrelly. She had become semi-famous the year before, when she had collapsed at the depositions in the district court in October, where he was returned for a charge of murder. His trial had started that day, and it appeared that the prospect of having to give evidence again in court had put her over the edge. Shan Mohangi appeared with his senior counsel, junior counsel, and his solicitors, wearing the blue suit that he had worn the evening of Hazel's disappearance. He pled not guilty in front of a small crowd of the public allowed to be present in the courtroom. There were 72 witnesses being called by the prosecution alone, so the space was limited. The all-male jury were impaneled. Remember, only male ratepayers at this time. Hazel's family and Shan's family were seated together at the trial. Niall McCarthy, senior counsel, opened the case for the prosecution, outlining Hazel's last movements the day she went missing, and saying that Mohangi's account of accidental strangling was not to be believed. The trial would turn on this issue, and if the jury were to believe Shan's account that Hazel's death had been an accident, the outcome of the trial would be far from certain. Mohangi's relationship with Josie was introduced to show that Mohangi's reaction to the possibility of Hazel's infidelity was not consistent with his own behaviour. She had made a statement in the deposition in October, but had also made a further statement in which she claimed that Hazel and Shan had slept together twice, according to Mohangi, and on one occasion it had resulted in him being booted out of Hazel's home. But both the prosecution and the defence were quick to defend Hazel's reputation publicly and said that the relationship was a very proper one and that it was approved of by the Mullen family. Senior counsel told the jury that what had happened to Hazel's body after her death was not to preoccupy them too much. It didn't make her murder more or less of a crime. They were to decide the case on the evidence presented alone. As McCarthy's speech came to an end that first day, he told the jury that they were to forget what they had read in the press about the case, including rumours that Hazel had died as a result of a botched abortion, and said that they were further to put aside any revulsion that they might feel about a white girl having a relationship with a coloured man. Nor were they to let their sympathy for a foreigner in a strange country outweigh their judgment. He had decided to tackle head-on the undercurrent of racism he knew that he would face from the general Irish public. The next day, evidence was given by those who had seen Hazel that Saturday morning at work and across College Green and down Grafton Street. The jury heard about the white smoke seen billowing from the green terrain's grate that afternoon, and the arrival of the fire brigade was described. Winston Satubu gave evidence about the going-ons that weekend. It seemed he had been in number 95 that whole weekend. He was a bit confused about what had happened when at points. He said he had seen Josie Farrelly at lunchtime that Saturday, not Hazel. The members of the fire brigade who had responded to the call to number 95 gave evidence of the scene on their arrival and Mohangi's behaviour. They said he appeared nervous and frightened, but he insisted that everything was all right. Desmond Mullen gave evidence of Shan Mahangi's involvement with his family and Hazel's relationship with him. 
He went over the events of that weekend that Hazel went missing. He was followed on the stand by his sister Evelyn, and then his mother Bridget Mullen. She recounted her knowledge of the relationship that her daughter and Mohangi had had, and told the jury about two incidents in particular, a time that she had received a call from Shan saying that Hazel was in hospital after being burned with boiling water, and another time when Hazel had told her that Shan and she had looked at engagement rings. She described the letters that she handed over to the guardie that were exchanged between Hazel and Mohangi. Most of them were unremarkable. One was not. At this point, further details of the letter were not given. She then recounted her memories of the weekend in August that her daughter had died. The next day, various guardie gave evidence about the initial search for Hazel and Mohangi's calm demeanour throughout their interactions with him. Inspector Kennedy detailed his involvement in the case, going through the searches he did of number 95 and his various chats with Mohangi. He identified items taken from the house to the court, including a number of knives and items of clothing. He identified the letters that Mrs. Mullen had handed over to him and read one in particular. At the time, reporters unanimously decided that the contents of this letter would not be reported upon. The letter contained advice to Hazel about sexual relationships and marriage from Shan, where Mahangi insisted that he had a brotherly affection for her while simultaneously professing his undying love. He had laid it on thick in this one, and it was odd. Then the forensics experts gave evidence of their findings in the search of number 95, including what had been found in the blocked-up fireplace. Margaret O'Connor spoke about the smell that she had noticed and recounted finding the bone in the storage cellar. Day four of the trial saw Cecil Frew take the stand, and he described his actions the night of August 20th and his interactions with the guards of Harcourt Terrace Station and finding Mohangi after his attempted suicide. Evidence was given of Mohangi's health by the ambulance men and doctors who treated him that day. Evidence was given by the guardie present when Mohangi admitted to the accidental killing of Hazel. Michael Cusack, the handyman, gave evidence that he had put the bins out that Saturday from the restaurant as usual, and evidence was given that the bins had been collected and dumped at Ring's End. The place that they had been dumped was subsequently searched for any remains of Hazel, but at court the jury heard that nothing had been found. This was not what had been rumoured in the wake of Hazel's death and Mohangi's confession, however. There were rumours that the remains of a botched abortion had been found in the dump. On Valentine's Day, the fifth day of the trial began and Dr. Morris Hickey took to the stand. He confirmed that there was no obvious signs of the cause of death. He went on to discuss the effects of strangulation on the body and confirmed that he was unable to determine if this had been the cause of death as the relevant tissues of the neck were not recovered. Further effects of the strangulation usually present on the head of a victim were impossible to determine as it appeared that her head had been subjected to intense heat. In other words, roasted. At this point, he speculated, under questioning from the prosecution, that the treatment of the head and the removal of the neck tissues was an attempt to cover up the signs of strangulation. This statement, on the face of it, is hugely problematic in terms of the law of evidence. 
He appears to be saying that this might have occurred because Mohangi wanted to destroy evidence, and if he wanted to destroy evidence, then this indicated that he was guilty of murder. As Kevin Higgins, author of the book I used for researching this episode, points out, this is, quote, at best a hypothesis on a hypothesis, end quote, and Dr. Hickey's interpretation of the evidence seemed to go a bit further and provide speculation of what had happened that simply wasn't there. Desmond Bell, for the defence, objected to the conclusions that Hickey was drawing, but Mr Justice Stephen, presiding, although he admitted to seeing the point of this objection, allowed senior counsel Condon to continue with his line of questioning, looking for the doctor to give answers more concerned with motive than with fact. When it was Bell's turn to question Dr Hickey, he asked whether the cause of death might have been vagal inhibition, that is, the heart stopping due to pressure on the vagus nerves in the upper neck. This could happen due to very little pressure and could give further indication of accidental death. Hickey grudgingly admitted that vagal inhibition was a possibility, but when he resumed the stand the next day, Saturday, he clarified for the prosecution that he had only seen one case previously where vagal inhibition was a possibility and that this was more likely to be the cause of death in a violent attack. He said that in cases of strangulation, loss of consciousness could be quick meaning that there was little to no struggle. After Hickey finished up, it was Josie Farrelly's turn on the stand. She was recovered from her turn the previous Monday, and seemed in good health, if not distressed and worried. She got no further than stating her name, address, and previous occupation before Desmond Bell was on his feet, asking for the jury to be withdrawn, for him to make a submission. The judge said that Josie too could leave, but she decided to stay on in the court. Bell disputed the relevance of Farrelly's second statement, which describes her sexual relationship with Mohangi, and goes on to say that Mohangi had told her that he had had sex with Hazel too. But the prosecution pointed out that Bell had made no objections when this evidence was referred to in the opening statement, and the judge ruled in his favour rather than Bell's. After a great deal of detailed examination about the poor woman's sex life, they turned to her relationship with Shan. She had been seeing him about five days a week when she returned to Dublin to work in the hospital. They'd often argued and hit each other, and he had grabbed her by the throat once. She knew Hazel, and Mohangi had told her all about the young girl. She had been under the impression that Mohangi and Hazel had stopped seeing each other after Mrs Mullen threw Shan out one night when he was caught in bed with Hazel. Bell cross-examined Josie on everything she had said about her interactions with Mohangi, and then went on to ask her if it was true that Mohangi had been recommending to her that she marry another man, one he named in particular. She agreed that this was the case. She confirmed that he had grabbed her by the neck before shaking her and letting her go. On re-examination, the prosecution asked Josie about threats Mohangi had made to her. Bell interrupted and disputed that Josie said Mohangi had threatened her during cross. Condren was quite insistent that this was the case, though Bell stated he didn't see how anything of the sort had arisen from his questioning. By 11.50 that Saturday, Bell asked for the jury to be excused once again so that he might make an application. When he made his submission, it was for the charge of murder to be withdrawn, as he stated the prosecution had not made out their case that Hazel's death was not accidental, as the accused had stated. Justice Teven refused the decision and declined to state his reasoning for it. Just before lunchtime, the defence counsel Edward Fahey rose to give his opening address. 
He stated that it was the prosecution's case that his client had intentionally killed Hazel Mullen, or had at the very least meant to cause her serious harm. But if that was the case, he had picked a day that he had arranged with Hazel to meet for lunch, with her mother's knowledge, and had also made arrangements with her older brother for that evening. He said Mahangi had remained consistent in his telling of the event, that he had accidentally killed Hazel. He hadn't even really meant to hurt her. He had panicked when he realised she had died, and out of fear, he naively attempted to get rid of her body by cremating it in the oven. The court then adjourned until the next Monday. That day was cold, but it hadn't put off crowds taking the place of the prosecution's witnesses that were no longer required in court. Shan Mahangi would take the stand that day, and the crowds could not be put off. Bell began his questioning by going through Mahangi's early life in South Africa, his relationship with Josephine and then Hazel and her family. He talked about the incident where Hazel had been burned by boiling water. Mahangi again said that it was an accident. Finally, they got to the Saturday in question. Shan said that Hazel had arrived at his flat and she had asked him to show her the restaurant. They looked at the kitchen and the goldfish. They embraced and Mohangi told her that they would go eat at a Chinese restaurant and go window shopping for engagement rings that afternoon. At this point, Hazel said that she had something to tell him and that he might not want anything to do with her after that. He said she told him that she had been with another man and that she had had sex with him. Mohangi went on to describe how he immediately grabbed her by the neck, cupping her with both hands, asking who it was. But he pushed her away and she fell, sagged, to the ground. He was scared and ran upstairs and cried in his flat, but he didn't stay there long. He went back to the restaurant where Hazel was still lying on the floor. It was at this point, he said, that he realised she was dead. He said he then decided to cut her up. He thought that if he could do this, then he could burn her and be rid of her body. He put her clothes on top of the gas jets in the kitchen. This is what had caused the bellowing white smoke noticed by the Fitzpatricks and investigated by the fire brigade. He hid the body while the fire brigade looked around and then got on with the task of dismembering Hazel Mullen's body. When his testimony was finished, the court briefly adjourned to allow everybody to collect themselves. When the prosecution took over, they questioned Mohangi closely about the incident with the rice that had resulted in Hazel's burn. He asked Mohangi had he once said of the rice incident to Desmond and his girlfriend Heather that he would have liked to kill Hazel. Mohangi agreed but insisted that the incident was an accident and that he did not mean that he would actually like to kill Hazel. He was then questioned about his relationship with Josephine Farrelly and admitted that he had hit her and caught her by the throat. He denied threatening her, but counsel for the state was like a dog with a bone about this point, and eventually Mohangi said that he may have once threatened Josie in a letter. Condon for the state then produced a letter. It was from Shan to Josie, dated the 8th of July, 1962, written while she was back at her parents in Mullingar. The letter outlined how Mohangi felt about Josephine and her association with his cousin, Rajim. They had fought over her soft spot for him, and his jealousy and anger led him to threaten to, quote, knock your face in, end quote, and the idea of Rajim and Josie together made him feel like having his fingers on her throat. He goes on to say that if Josie still had feelings for Rajim, then she should not come back to him because he would kill her. 
Mohangi insisted to Condren that he had not meant these words literally, although he admitted to hitting Josie and grabbing her by the neck. He said he never thought it might be dangerous to do such a thing. Condren then went on to question Mohangi about the time in April when the two had looked at engagement rings. He put it to him that Hazel wasn't particularly enthusiastic about the potential purchase, but Shan denied this. After that, Hazel and Mohangi's relationship had cooled off, Mohangi agreed. He agreed that he had told Cecil Frew that Hazel was distancing herself from him, and that Bridget, her mother, had told him that it was important for a young girl to mix with people and associate with a number of boys. All of this had resulted in the letter that Mohangi had sent to Hazel on May 27th, asking Hazel to be his girlfriend again. He also described how, just days before Hazel had died, Mohangi, Bridget and Hazel were relaxing at the lodge in Crinken. Bridget had answered a knock at the door, and it was a male caller for Hazel. She sent him away because Mohangi was there, and told Hazel about her visitor, a man she recognised from her mother's description as being a student at Trinity College. Mohangi had decided at this point that he had to leave. There was some sort of exchange between the two as he was leaving about the man. Hazel had denied wanting to go out with him, but Mohangi didn't believe her. Mohangi said he left the house feeling jealous and annoyed at Hazel. The next day, Mohangi resumed the stand and Condon resumed his cross-examination. They went over the day of Hazel's death and Condon questioned him closely on his actions and reactions that afternoon when Hazel collapsed on the restaurant floor. Mohangi hadn't attempted to help Hazel in any way, he had just run off, and had not thought about getting a doctor or getting her to any of the very nearby hospitals like he had managed to do the day she was burned. His first reaction was to dispose of the body of the girl he said he had worshipped. Condon asked him directly what he had done with the skin and tissues of Hazel's neck and why he had done it. Mohangi replied that he didn't remember doing anything with them. Justice Stephen intervened at this point and explained that Dr. Hickey had been positive that the skin could not have been burnt away, and therefore must have been removed. Condon accused Mohangi of putting Hazel's head in the oven in order to hide signs of how she had died, and to attempt to render her unrecognizable. Mohangi denied this. He insisted that he thought the head would be burned up, or at least be in a condition such that he would be able to break it up further and put it in the bin, but he found that when he took Hazel's head out of the oven, he couldn't do that, and so he hid it in the storage cellar. He thought that no one would find Hazel's body there, or in the bins, or in the fireplace. He had not felt under suspicion when he heard from Bridget Mullen, or when he had slept in Hazel's bed, or when the guardie had come to search number 95, though he insisted that he was scared throughout the whole time and denied having had a cool or calm demeanour. He had not panicked at the smell noted by the two women who worked in the restaurant and had not thought Cecil Frew's behaviour the night they went on a drive at 3am to be unusual. When Bell got to his feet for redirect, he read into the record a number of letters from Hazel to Mahangi, which he thought shed more light on the nature of their relationship, that she had hoped to be his wife some day, that she had stepped out on him before. Bell also managed to get into evidence the letter that Josie Farrelly had written in response to Mahangi's letter that Condren asserted contained actual threats. The language employed by Josie was pretty choice, and she gave him as good as she got. She denied having anything to do with his cousin. She certainly didn't seem to feel threatened, and though she was obviously angry in the body of the letter, she professed her love for Mahangi in the postscript. 
Belle had had no notification of Mahangi's letter to Josie, and so by introducing Josie's letter in response, he was able to address the contents of it once more, which he hadn't gotten a chance to do when Josie was on the stand. Mohangi's day on the stand ended with the judge himself deciding to rehash much of his evidence, apparently for clarity's sake. But he basically cross-examined him again, doing the prosecution's job for them once more. The next day, the defence called two medical experts, who both gave testimony about vagal inhibition. Both agreed that it was entirely possible that Hazel had died in this manner. Both had witnessed vagal inhibition in patients, some fatally, some who had recovered. One expert said that the only course of action to take if someone had suffered such an attack, which would have immediately stopped the heart, was massage of the heart. But the procedure was relatively new, and he said most people would be unable to complete it properly and in time to save someone. Then Bell gave his closing speech. He said that for the eight and a quarter hours that Shan had been on the stand, that he had told the truth. He made much of Mohangi's letter to Josie being introduced to evidence so late, and then went on to boldly accuse the prosecution of racism. He said, quote, I imagine that the prosecution apparently believed that because something happened after the event, because the public and everybody else, indeed, you are and I am horrified at what happened to the body of this unfortunate girl, that they say somebody must suffer for it, and all the better that he is an Indian. Bell was not concerned with endearing himself to his learned friends and colleagues on the prosecution side of the court, it would seem. When he continued the next day, he brought up his objection to the showing of the photographs of Hazel's remains to the jury, which he stated was wholly unnecessary to the case and was done simply to inflame and horrify the jury themselves. He went on to emphasize that Mohangi had not intended to kill Hazel when he grabbed her and that the evidence did not support the charge of murder. He said that either this was a case of premeditated murder or it was, as Mohangi insisted, that it was an accident. He put a question to the jury, quote, Do you believe that this young man, after killing the girl he loved, obviously in the spur of the moment and in a quarrel, was cool and calm? Or was he in a frenzy of panic and fear, panic greatly increased by the knowledge inbred in him since he was a child that mere association with a white girl was wrong and illegal? He probably felt he would have been treated unjustly or unfairly if it was discovered that he was there when the girl had died. He must have been irrational with fear. End quote. In response, Condon for the prosecution asserted that Mohangi was a violent man who had believed that Hazel had become a tainted woman by going out with other boys and that they had made their case out for murder and failing that, manslaughter. Justice Stephen then charged the jury. He went through the evidence and described the elements required for murder. He said that if they found the accused had taken Hazel's throat in his hands intending to kill her or cause her serious harm, then they must find for murder. He also said that they must disregard the dismemberment of the body, as just because Mohangi had admitted to this did not automatically mean that he had killed her. This was despite the fact that he had admitted the photos of the body. After dealing with express and implied malice, the idea that if the attack is violent, malice is then implied, even if it's not actually expressed, he went on to address what Bell had said about having an Indian man pay for the death of Hazel. He said that if Mr. Bell was right, then they would all be living in an awful and cruel regime. Drawing this statement out, if they agreed with Mr. Bell, the jury would be agreeing that we were all a bunch of racists. 
The jury focused in on the idea of intent to decide their case, it would seem. They asked for a number of clarifications in relation to the definitions, but also sent a question to the judge regarding the duration of the attack and how that related to intent. They asked if they could infer the accused's intention from the fact that he had held her until she collapsed, no matter how long a period of time that might have been. The judge responded that intent could be inferred from the nature of the attack, and that this intent could be inferred no matter how long or short the attack may have been. In both statements, it's kind of a circular argument. If she died from the attack, we can infer that he meant to kill her because she died, if you get me. Neither the defence nor the prosecution had asked Mohangi about the force he used when he had grabbed Hazel, so the jury were on their own here. Bell argued to the court that the idea that the jury must infer intent was legally unsound. They didn't have to infer anything, but they could if it was justified by the nature of the attack. Teven then decided to call the jury back to give further instructions, but before this could happen, word was gotten that the jury had reached a verdict. Bell must have felt sick. He insisted that the judge clarify his charge before the jury delivered the verdict, and so just as Teven went on to blather a bit about how he disagreed with Bell, but Bell wanted it made clear to the jury that the judge in this case was not taking away the issue of intent from the jury to decide. Would they like to retire to consider that? No. It was reported that some of the men were already in their overcoats. They were anxious to be away from the court as the evening drew to a close. They had last retired at ten to nine, and they returned at twelve minutes past nine. They had taken only minutes to come to their decision. The verdict was that Shan Mahangi was guilty of murder. Shan had nothing to say in response. Justice Stephen placed the black cap on his head and sentenced Shan to death. He was to be hanged on the 18th of March that year, 1964. But that's not nearly the end of the story of Shan Mahangi. When the verdict was delivered, the Irish Parliament, the Dáil and Shannad Aaron, were in recess and were not expected to reconvene for two weeks. But five days later, the Minister for Justice, Charles J. Hawhey, managed to get the Criminal Justice Bill 1963 through the Senate. Things were moving quickly, much more quickly than could have been expected when the bill was first introduced the year before. The death of Hazel Mullen had caused public outrage, and rumours flew regarding the case. People wanted to find out who was responsible and make them pay. But in the Houses of Parliament and amongst government officials, it seems as if there was some concern about the result of the trial. Of course, Mohangi was never going to be executed on the 18th of March, a day when most people presumably would prefer to be recovering from the day before. The bill was signed into law by the President on the 25th of March, and Mohangi's appeal would be heard in May. In addition to this, for the past nine years it had been the custom to recommend clemency to the President for those sentenced to death. There's no reason to suppose that Chan would have been any different. But the passage of this law meant that the government didn't have to face any backlash from the public, who had been outraged by Mohangi's crime. They need not be accused of being soft on the man who had killed a young girl and then cut her up and cooked her. When his appeal came before the court, not only did it allow the appeal, but they also quashed the conviction and ordered a retrial on the basis of the irrelevance of most of Josephine Farley's evidence, and that the letter from Mahangi to Josie should not have been admitted either. They found no problem with the admissibility of the photographs, however, saying that it had been at the discretion of the trial judge. Two weeks later, Shan Mahangi's retrial began, 
and it would be subject to the new laws in place. The evidence was gone over again, with notable differences in Josephine Farrelly's testimony, and lacking a number of letters that were previously allowed in. The atmosphere was far less tense and heated than the first trial, and ran very smoothly. The public interest had also waned by this time, and there was far less interest in the trial. There was less at stake, and some people had been satisfied by Justice Teaver simply placing the black cap on his head. After three and three-quarter hours, the jury this time returned a verdict of guilty, but of manslaughter. Mohangi was sentenced to seven years. He served about five years in custody, including the time he was in prison during the trials, and was promptly repatriated to South Africa on his release in 1968. The whole affair had been scandalous from start to finish. A very young girl, barely 15, doing a line with an older man, a foreigner, a man of colour. Not only had he killed her, he had desecrated her body. These actions led to speculation and rumours that the poor girl had died in the process of a botched abortion. There was no evidence of this, of course, but this seemed like a good explanation for these hard actions. It wasn't unheard of, after all, and people were often suspicious of these young men coming over to study medicine. It was often assumed that they were the ones responsible for the backstreet abortions that happened in the city. It was possibly the most common form of racism that they encountered. It was really no wonder that Shan was labelled an abortionist. Just another thing to add to the list of reasons to revile him. Though, of course, the word abortion was never even uttered at the trial. There were a number of attacks of young men of colour in the city in the wake of Mahangi's arrest, just as some 900 middle-class, mainly white men and women, met in the mansion house in Dublin to condemn Nelson Mandela's death sentence and to take part in the anti-apartheid campaign. And it was to apartheid South Africa that Mohangi returned, but now known by a family name on his mother's side. He was now Shan Jamuma. His father disinherited him, and he ended up working on a family farm. But true to his young self, he worked hard and he bought land of his own and eventually owned a number of petrol stations. Incredibly, he stood in the controversial elections of 1984 and was elected to the so-called Coloured Chamber of the South African government, despite the fact that the whole exercise was largely boycotted by the non-white inhabitants of the country. In 1994, when apartheid finally collapsed and democratic elections were held, Shan stood for the National Party in his home of Natal. He was not elected. But in 2009, after adopting the name Narantuk Jamuma, Shan stood for election once more. He was chosen as a candidate by the Independence Party, but the newspapers caught wind of his past in Ireland, and he withdrew from the race and resigned from the party. Shan Mohangi was interviewed in 1994 for the RTE documentary Thou Shalt Not Kill, and stated, If I had one wish, it would be to bring Hazel Mullen back and undo what was done. But that is not possible. Her mother also appeared in that documentary, and it was clear that she was still devastated by the loss of her young daughter. But she and her whole family said that they had forgiven Shan. Today, Shan Mohangi is nearly 80 years old. I found no record of his death in South Africa, so presumably he's still living his life there, as he has been since 1968. Bridget Mullen passed away in 1997. The murder of Hazel Mullen tragically ended a young, promising life. The subsequent trial of Shan Mohangi highlighted the changes going on in Dublin and Ireland at the time. The death penalty was being dismantled as a routine punishment 
Irish people were beginning to see an influx of people from different countries and cultures, and the country was beginning to take its place among modern countries in Europe. Some may say that this was the year that the Beatles were mobbed in Dublin, or the year JFK turned the country to throngs of admirers looking on. But we will remember it as the year that Hazel Mullen was killed. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod. Join in on the discussion at the Mens Rea Pod discussion group or send us in your questions, comments or suggestions to mensreapod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Your support means a lot and helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, or in the show notes. Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod, with thanks to Rona McHugh for help with sound engineering. Till next time, don't do anything.